What are you waiting for? Mike, what's going on, man? So good to see you. <laughs> Do it again. Do it again. <laughs> I interrupted you. Are we gonna have are we gonna have bloopers? Cause this is great already. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Talking Chill Out with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. I am joined by Sylvie Lubau, directly in via satellite from Brooklyn. <laughs> in via satellite. I am having some... Well, aren't you tethered? Aren't you tethered, I'm tethered right now? I'm having some Wi-Fi outage issues. So, uh, you know, the old hotspot. It's pretty amazing that we're in this world where you can just call in from your phone, do a whole interview like this. Like, it's, you know, it. in- I, I actually am inspired. I'm inspired in this moment. As a producer, it makes me on edge, but I, I was trying to be cu- cool as a cucumber. Can't even say it. That's how not cool I am. Oh, you were uh, you were so cool in that one. That was <laughs> I great. I <was> silent. <laughs> um, uh, and when we talk about that one, we are talking about the interview today with Mike King, who is the founder and CEO of Rank, which is a content strategy agency. Uh, Mike is a keynote speaker. He's writing a book right now. He's an expert on SEO. And this interview, we get in there, is you're not going to be surprised. AI implications to SEO, search. We also got a little heady. Got a lot heady. Got real heady. I was squirming. I was I was feeling the weight of morality in that interview. But uh, tell me, tell me, Savage, what's got you talking too loud? You know, um, I, there's a lot of things I think today. I, I am talking obviously way too loud about um, generative AI. I'm talking too loud about the speed that things are moving, but we get into that both of those things in the interview. I just finished uh, Shrinking. Have you seen that? I saw On Shrinking. Apple TV Plus? I, yeah. I love Shrinking. It was just really hit me. It was so fun to see just that. I don't know. I, we finished it last night and I was thinking to myself, it's like, if, I hope this isn't a spoiler alert, but you, you actually like all the characters in the show. You do. And you're like rooting for all of them, which feels kind of rare in a lot of content today that like, you know, there's usually there's like the dark underbelly, blah, blah, blah. Don't get me wrong. I love that stuff too. Um, but I just really love the fact that it was like, I'm rooting for all these characters. There's a lot of drama in their lives. There's a lot of conflict outside of them that we see like on the show. Uh, but it, it just was fun and engaging. I, I really loved it. It's nice to see Harrison Ford in like a softer role. Still a little prickly, but you know. Did you see this story? Did you hear the story about how they like, he agreed to be on the show? No. So the writer of Shrinking, Brett Goldstein, I think is his name, who also was on Ted Lasso. Yeah. Yeah. And so he wrote it with Jason Segel and some other people. And they, they apparently wrote this role for Harrison Ford. And they're like, we think he would be perfect for this, but he'll never do it. So they sent it to him there anyway, because it's just too easy to send people stuff. And his agent said, oh, he wants to meet with you. He wants to meet someone at his house for dinner. And so Brett went to his, meet him. I hope I'm getting the story right, because I <laughs> saw this you know, <laughs> somewhere. Um, and Brett went to his house and showed up, and Harrison Ford was at the door, which was like a shocking experience, like Han Solo at the door. And he said, best script I've ever read. And Brett's like, oh, my God. He's like, I'm going to do it. And he's like, really? Okay. And then Harrison's like, so can we just eat now? Because like they, he said he wanted to meet him for dinner. He's like, let's just eat. And so <laughs> that was like this like built up this whole thing, Brett being really stressed or what have you. And then he got there and like Harrison Ford just like loved it from the beginning, which is kind of fun. That's sweet. That's really yeah. sweet. And with generative AI, Harrison Ford might live forever. That's, that's, that's a tease for what's coming down the pike. Oh, yeah. 
No, he may he may live forever. We may always have Indiana Jones with us. Yep. Yep. Still wrapping my mind around. So should we go into the interview to learn more about this? I think so. Mike, so good to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Excited to see you as well. And, you know, congrats on everything y'all are doing with Wistia. Like, I'm I'm someone who watches from the outside and doesn't say anything. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, thank you. I mean, also, on the same side, like, I, it's been fun to see everything you've been doing. I've loved when you, especially been sharing the videos of your rapping and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um so we don't, we don't, we don't hang out enough. There was a moment in time in the conference circuit where I felt like I saw you more and yeah. I didn't, I haven't done it as much. Um, you just went to the, actually the last search lab, right? I did in San Diego. It was great. Well, I mean, it was sad, but it was also great. <laughs> what was the vibe like there? Uh, I mean, I think everyone was excited just cause you know, it's been so long with like pandemic and everything. Uh, but also everyone knowing that it was the last one, it was like, all right, come with your best stuff. And, you know, just like have a celebration for all the things that Search Love created for us. You know, for me, Search Love was the second conference I spoke at. Like the first one was SMX East. But Search Love was like, I felt like I was more myself because, you know, SMX East was kind of like people in sports coats and all that. Whereas like, you know, it's people in hoodies and T-shirts at Search Love. So I've always appreciated what they built and, you know, what that contributed to my career. Yeah, I was sad for me to watch it from the outside. There was a moment like a few days before I was like, do I need to just fly to this conference? Do I just need to go (laughs) and attend to see it? Because it was for me too one of those places where I met so many people and learned Mm -hmm. so much. It was just such a good vibe. Um, Well, speaking of a place that we're trying to have good vibes and introduce people to new folks, welcome to Talking Too Loud. And as you know, this is a show where... It's called Talking Too Loud because I can't control the vibe of my voice, so I get excited. It's already starting to happen. I actually can see that I'm peeking over here, so I need to adjust this. Um, but we love to start the show by hearing what's got what's got you talking too loud. What are you excited about these days? Yeah, uh, generative AI, like everyone else, <laughs> which is weird because it's something I've been on for like three or four years now. So it's weird to watch the world get on it because uh, we've been doing things with it like as early as GPT-2. We've been deploying that sort of stuff for search. But, you know, just like the pace of advancement right now is just so difficult to keep up with. Like, yeah, I'm not someone that experiences anxiety regularly. But when I look at my Twitter feed now and see yeah. how quickly people are coming up with new stuff, I'm just like, yo, slow down, y'all. And it's, it's actually kind of funny because <laughs> just today um, there's like a petition that people like, you know, Elon Musk have signed where they're asking everyone to like stop it with all the innovation in generative AI for six months. (laughs) Like don't come up with anything that's crazier than GPT-4 for six months, which is, there's no way people are going to get on board with that. Like there's no way, but it's just wild. That's that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild that like, that's where we're at. Like everyone's like, yo, just slow down. This is too much. Yeah, it is weird. And I, I mean, I've, I saw someone actually uh, who was on the show recently, Heaton Shaw was tweeting about Mm -hmm. this and he's like, Everyone's talking about how they're so overwhelmed. And like, and then someone else is saying, like, this is just what new tech is like. And he's like, no, I don't think so. I don't think no, I've ever not. seen this ever happen in tech. Yo, it's every day, right? Like, Chat GPT came out in November. GBT4 came out this month. Like, that is crazy, you know? And it's just yeah. like such a quantum leap forward in capabilities in such a, a short time. And then you've got 
you know, just like the power of the crowd, right? Like everyone is like, hey, I have this idea. And because everything is built on these APIs and it's pretty simple to implement, like that idea now exists. And now you're like, okay, well, how do I use that? Oh, I'm trying to use it. And now there's a new thing and you never really get to a point of mastery of anything. And so it's just so much to to consume. Also, when you're trying to be someone who's actively producing something, you know, for me, it's always been like, okay, let, let's take in what's going on. Let's synthesize. Let's come up with a new thing. And it's just like, it's, it's such a fire hose that I don't have time to come up with a new thing yet. <laughs> yeah. It's bizarrely overwhelming. Um, mm -hmm. It's like, yeah. And I know what you mean. You open up Twitter and you're like, oh, so this new thing has happened. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. Um, and even the questions of like, so is OpenAI and ChatGPT going to be just more, that's the main way that people are going to interface with this? Mm -hmm. Or is it actually going to be GPT-4 and the APIs and being a platform company? It's like an interesting question by itself that I feel like the plugins launch made me think like they're going to make more of a play towards being a direct consumer business like Google. Yeah, absolutely. And that is what kind of changed my thinking about it to some degree, right? Like I fundamentally did not believe that chat was like the primary interface that's going to meet people's information need. Like you don't always want to have a full conversation to figure something out. Sometimes yeah. you just want to search and read something, or sometimes you're yeah. doing research and it makes sense. But once you integrate these plugins, then that kind of changes the game, you know, because you could have a conversation with a chat bot where you're like, hey, I want to uh, figure out a place to go on vacation. Okay, I like that. Go ahead and book that for me. That cuts Google entirely out of the equation. Like you don't need to you know, look at flights, look at hotels, figure out if this hotel chain is in that area. Like you do all that in one chat where it's really synthesizing that information for you. That is a game changer. And I think a lot more people are going to want something like that rather than having to like do it all piecemeal themselves. Yeah. And so it's, I mean, it's obviously it's impacting everything. It's changing everything. I'm realizing we, you and I know each other. So we just like jumped right in, but let's zoom back out <laughs> for people. Like, sure. can you just tell us like, who you are and what you do. Yeah. I am simultaneously the best SEO ever and the best rapper ever. Done. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, no, nah, like I'm Mike King. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of an agency called iPool Rank. I'm also a marketing technologist. My background is in computer science. Um, you know, I've done a variety of things. Like I've used to make music for a living for about eight years. There's a little overlap between that and my SEO career which also includes a really weird um, uh, connection in that, you know, one of my best friends that I used to tour with, we were on, on a train in like Sweden. He's like, Mike, I know you're doing the SEO thing. I have a cousin that owns an SEO software company. I'm like, who's your cousin? He's like, yeah, his name is Rand Fishkin. I was like, what? Like, <laughs> what? Like, that's crazy. Um, so like, there's a lot of overlap between those two careers for me. And, um, you know, I do a lot of speaking. I'm finishing up a book right now called The Science of SEO. And it's really about more about like the computer science, not just like it's not a business book. It's like, here's how this stuff actually works. You know, looking at information retrieval, looking at natural language processing, things like that, like really trying to give people an understanding, because I think it's, there's just a huge disconnect in the SEO world which is like fueled by a whole lot of like speculation and conjecture. And I'm just like, cool, let's make this real based on like the actual information and best practices you can learn from 
you know, just like the computer science behind everything. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. And I have two kids and they're amazing. <laughs> how how old are they now? Six and three. Two oh, girls. Fun. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, mine are seven and five now, also two girls, and it's it's chaos in the best way. Of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah, they, you know, like I'll wake up to one of them like hitting me with their iPad or something like that. You know, it's just every day <laughs> is something different. <laughs> um, okay, so can you also, for people who don't really understand what SEO is, can you just break down what is search engine optimization? Like what goes into it? I want to start there and then I want to move into like kind of where we started the conversation today. Like what have the changes been and what's coming for all of us? Like how can this change? Yeah, it's funny. We we kind of started this. You know how when people post videos like this and they have like the preview, it's like the hook, you jump yeah. right into the conversation. Yeah. We yeah. naturally did it that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, SEO, I mean, search engine optimization is really about giving visibility to content. Um, and there's a variety of components that go into it. People tend to stratify between the technical, the content, and then the off-page factors. Uh, technical factors being really like what's under the hood from the website that's stopping it from being, you know, accessible, visible, and what have you. Then there's the content factors, which most people tend to think of like really just counting words. Am I using the word enough in these places and so on? Which is really kind of an outmoded way to look at it because Google has really moved towards a more semantic relevance model. And then there's the off page factors, which is largely like, you know, the quantity and quality of links pointing to your site. Um, that's a really oversimplified version of it, but nevertheless, like that's what it is. And a lot of the work that we do is working with clients, both on the technical side, also on the content strategy side and figuring out like, how do we actually make this work for them for the goals that they have? I didn't know you were experimenting with GPT too. Um, yeah. What did that look like? And like, how did that influence how you were doing helping folks with SEO? Yeah, and primarily we were using that for e-commerce sites because there's a dirty little secret in e-commerce sites where it's like you can just make a whole bunch of um, <laughs> near duplicate pages and have them based on like internal searches. So let's say, for instance, someone searches the keyword red Nike sneakers on your e-commerce site. Well, that generates a page, which is just like a product listing page of all your, your uh, red Nike sneakers. And so a lot of sites generate millions of these pages and really just crush it on the long tail. And what we realized is like, you know, there's no unique content on those. So why don't we just add unique content to them? And so one of the things that we were doing with GPT-2 was leveraging the data model behind those sites, plugging that into prompts and then using that to generate, you know, any number of words to talk about the products on that page. And it worked fantastic. Like one of our clients, we have a case study for because we drove an incremental $300 million off of that tactic. So the way it worked, it wasn't... No big deal. No big deal. No yeah. big deal. Yeah, yeah, that's what we do. Just another 300. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wish they gave that to me, but it is what it is. Um, you know, so GPT-2 was far less sophisticated because your prompts were more like, just complete this sentence, right? So you're like, you know, Mary had a little, and then it fills in lamb. Like that sort okay. of thing. Um, but you could tell it how long you want it to be. You could also, you know, uh, mess with the temperature just like you can now, but what GPT three and four and so on do now is what's called text to text generation. And so you can like give it instructions back when the GPT two era, you didn't give it instructions. You just gave it the prompt and said, okay, keep going. And so what you had to do 
was a series of prompts so you could get something that was meaningful and didn't go off the rails because, you know, all this technology is based on probability, like the probability of the next word in the sequence based on what it's seen previously. And so it could easily go off the rails once it like it gets a word. It's like, hey, that word isn't what you meant. And then it like it suddenly is talking about something weird. So we would typically ask for a maximum of like 50 words or whatever. And then the next prompt and so on until we would get, you know, like a page of text. And then we would also be inserting um, different data points into that prompt. So then that copy could be really relevant to that page. Now, where things have gone since then, obviously, it's way it's far more improved than that. You can say like, hey, you know, here's the voice and tone that I want. Here are, um, you know, other elements that we want to include in here. And you can kind of let it go to some degree. Like, you, I still don't recommend going long with it, like still kind of limit it because it just becomes like way too general and then it's not so valuable. Um, but yeah, it's definitely evolving so quickly and it's, it's a super valuable thing for SEO, because again, SEO is all about content. And a lot of the content that you create for SEO is like mind numbing stuff that no one should have to write anyway. So why don't you just like give that to a computer and then let the people be more focused on the creative stuff. Um, Yeah. And so just to play back, so I got it. You're saying Mm -hmm. like, in all those cases where you were creating these e-commerce sites are creating like unique pages. Mm-hmm. And there was no actual relevant, unique content because it was like a listing of other things on the site. Right. You were able to use the older versions to create unique content on those pages that I assume a human would look at and be like, yep, this looks good or just tweak, what have you, and then post it. But that because there's so many pages and there's so many, you know, uh, probably you tell me, but tens of thousands of pages, huge numbers of pages millions. on some of these millions yeah. that you could make millions of pieces of content that are actually relevant, useful suddenly that works a lot more traffic comes in yep and that's what was happening that's crazy because i mean most people had no idea to your point like pre chat gpt the world didn't know that this existed mm-hmm. now let's go to where we are and where we think we're going to go which is like what do you think is is this actually a threat to google like is this going to oh. really change that i mean google's under a lot of threats right now right like i i, I like to think of it as like four different threats there is the threat of uh, you know, like TikTok and visual content and how, you know, uh, TikTok is getting way more activity than Google at this point. There's the general economic threats that we're all under right now. And so like they're having issues where, um, you know, ad sales are going down. There's also the threat of, you know, the Department of Justice trying to break them up or whatever. And then there's the threat that we're talking about here of generative AI. And so the issue there is that there's going to be a flood of content that pollutes the index. And then Google now has to like sift through it to figure out what's valuable. And, you know, to some degree, they're pretty good at that. Like that's what they already do, but it's just going to be so much more. And it's going to come from sources that are otherwise considered good, you know, like, because you see sites like Bankrate, CNET and so on who have started to do this. And like some of the content is inaccurate and, you know, these are considered reputable sources that yeah. are using this. So, um, and the other thing is that now we have the capability to generate like propaganda at scale, right? And so previously Google could say, okay, well, what we're seeing across the web is, you know, these are the facts. And so if a whole bunch of pages 
are suddenly saying like, no, that's not the fact. Well, Google has to contend with that, right? And so again, if if we get to a point where let's say I'm like a bad actor, which I'm not, I'm a fantastic actor, Oscar winning. <laughs> I I could, you know, set, essentially set up a million websites overnight that says that, you know, uh, Mike King is the president, right? And so now there's all these things oh, on the wow, web yeah. that yeah. say that, and then they have to, like, contend with that in their systems where they're trying to determine what is a fact. So there are potential implications for search yeah. quality. There's potential implications on, you know, just general relevance and... There's also implications as a marketer because if everyone has the ability to create content at scale, which can also be perfectly optimized because you can give instructions to a language model, well, what separates one page from another? And let, let's just assume everything else is equal. Like everyone is able to get the same quality and quantity of links and their sites are yeah. perfectly optimized. What separates my page from your page. And there's a, there's an answer here. You mean even on different websites? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because a lot of what people do in SEO is what we call like copycat content, right? And there's a lot of tools where it's like, okay, I want to rank for this keyword. And then it tells you, well, these are the questions that people are answering in this content. These are the keywords you need to use. These are the headings that they're using, things like that. And so then everyone makes the same thing. So being that that's already happening and now we can accelerate that with large language models, how's my content going to be any different from yours? Yeah. Can it, let yeah. me, let me jump in. Cause I think you, there's so much you said that's like, so has huge implications for marketing, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's so many implications then in there. And one of the things that's jumping out to me is I've had a lot of conversations with people about generative content, mm -hmm. but the assumption has not been like, Hey, we're all going to end up making the same thing in different places which is kind of one thing you're talking about um, or that like, you know, to your point, some people who already have a lot of high domain authority, like CNET, basically very highly trusted, lots of links, they're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And so how does Google treat that versus you? And it's not like we're going to be just competing with the competition you had before, um, except they have more content. It's just that like, if there's an area where there's a lot of interest, if we're talking about like infinite content effectively, mm -hmm. that like you're not going to be just competing with your competition before. You're going to be competing with your competition and the 10,000 other people who all create content for that same niche because it's clear that that's a valuable niche. And like there's, you know, there's a lot of search volume or there's a lot of interest there. And so it's like we're not going from our competitors just having more content. We're going from having to like that plus, you know, 10,000 new competitors on every term. Yeah. And, you know, again, like with the economic pressures, we're seeing a lot more, like as an example, the review space, a lot of different companies are trying to be wire cutters suddenly, right? Yeah. Like, like even dictionaries are now like launching their wire cutter competitor. Yeah. And so now it's like, cool, we can quickly spin up these reviews, which are just going to learn from other reviews that, um, you know, GPT-4 has learned from on the web. So if anyone can do it, like, you know, this the general economic principle suggests that anyone will do it. And mm -hmm. so competition is going to be even harder. But the way that a search engine can solve that is through a concept called information gain. And so the idea is like, let's say you've got 100 documents or, that are on the same subject. What you do is you say, OK, which of these documents has um, new information that the other ones don't have? And then you provide a boost from that. But even that is like 
kind of like a race to the bottom to some degree because then what happens is well you train your model on the new stuff and then the competition starts again but it, you know that's that's technically no different from what we do now because you know you put your content out you update it yeah or you make a new version or whatever um because everyone else has changed in the marketplace it's just going to happen it's going to happen much faster yeah yeah Definitely. Yeah, you're not going to have two years without somebody else trying to realizing, oh, we should go make a better version of this piece of content. It's going to be like right. two weeks. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, I actually think about this in a broader scale, too, because, you know, when you say content, like, we're not just talking about writing. Right. Like, I think that yeah. there are a lot of implications from, you know, the, the generative stuff as it relates to imagery or as it relates to video and so on. And I, I kind of go to the extremes when I think about this. I'm like, all right, well. If we can generate video content and we can generate people that don't exist, what's to stop Hollywood from like creating the next movie star? You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I've, I've been thinking the same exact way. Yeah. And it's like, if you're gonna have a risk with talent, right? Like you need the rights to the talent. You don't want them to age because like your, your movie, you know, you don't want John Wick four to be the last John Wick ever. You want to have John Wick 40, right? Exactly. And so like, that in a world with human beings, that's tough. But in a world with AI generative people, it's not. Right. Because like, think about it. We in Hollywood, we only have like a few bonafide movie stars. There's like, yeah. there's like Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Cruise, like a, a handful of those sorts of people. And the only limitation are, the, you know, maybe Tom Cruise doesn't want to do a whole lot more movies. He's yeah. like 50 something. Right. And so, like you said, if we create like the infinitely scalable actors will we'll have like you said john wick 40 and so on and they'll just like run with it forever and we're already seeing uh examples. did you hear about the bruce willis thing oh he sold the rights to his likeness or whatever right yeah which basically yeah. is like you know like he can't act anymore and he mm-hmm. was like okay with doing that but it's weird to think that a lot of the actors that like we've grown up with mm-hmm might be the same actors that our kids also grow up with and their kids. Well, James Earl Jones, he sold the rights to his voice. So we're going to have Darth Vader forever, you know? Yeah. Um, And we're seeing that people are are doing it themselves. Like I saw the other day, someone was um, training a model on like Kanye's voice and then like making music as Kanye. That was insane. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, one, how are we going to be able to tell what's real anymore? I mean, some of this stuff still has like some uncanny valley to it, but that's not going to be there forever. It's getting worked out so fast. Yeah. Like that that Kanye one was crazy because I feel like the, the first overdubbing I saw, I think was in Descript. It was maybe two mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was good, but you could tell, you know, when you heard the words, you could tell it was not the same. Yep. And now there's like a bunch of different companies and open source models that people are using to do this. And it's getting so, the Kanye one, you wouldn't know. Like, yeah. it really sounds like him. And it's, yeah, it is. What do we do? I mean, I don't know. What do you do in a world where you can't trust anything? What do you do? Well, they keep playing with this idea of watermarks. But, I mean, as soon as you make a watermark, somebody will make something that removes a watermark. So it's like, again, what do we do? Like, I don't I don't have the answer to that one. Um, yeah, I, I don't either. I accept that we have to train society that by default, unless you're seeing something in person, <laughs> like you can't, you can't, you have to question it, which is like a very, very different way to be. But 
I mean, this is also the same society that was accepting alternative facts a few years ago. The same society yes. that was duped by Cambridge Analytica and things like that. Totally. So, like, I don't know. I don't. I don't feel good about our chances. <laughs> well, it is interesting because, like, you know, uh, I have some friends that are doctors. We were talking about ChatGPT, and they're just like, "This thing can." Our jobs are to diagnose things. Mm-hmm. You know, you give it a bunch of inputs as to like how you're feeling, and you ask a bunch of questions. Well, tell me more about this and that. And then like, you know, maybe they ask for a test. They go to a test like, yep, this is your problem. And here's a solution. They're not making up the solutions. They're, mm-hmm. you know, there's like well-researched solutions that they use to provide answers. But in a world where you're getting those answers from like the chatbot can do it, what happens? And I think that's like uh, the parts of the job that are probably going to go away or be augmented in the near term are going to be the like helping to diagnose more quickly, I would think. Mm-hmm. But the human being sitting next to you becomes even more important, I think, for all the emotional reasons. I agree with that. I mean, I think that there's always going to be nuances and there's going to be uh, people struggling to communicate things accurately, which then can yield a, a poor response or a poor answer. So I think, especially in the case of like the medical fields, we're going to continue to need doctors to verify things. I mean, because it's not that different from someone Googling their symptoms and thinking they have cancer when it's just yeah. like, you know, they have a sprain yeah. or something like that. But I think that at least in the short term, we need to be thinking about this stuff more as like a force multiplier than a replacement. And there's so much yeah. fear about replacement, but you know, some of the things that get replaced is actually better for us. Right. Like, like let's say we're talking about replacing truck drivers with like cyber trucks or something like that. That's great. Truck driving sucks. You know, like have those people do something else. And I think that's the general trend that we've seen as technologies come out, that people are kind of displaced into new things. And of yes. course, there's some fear from that. But, you know, the the issue here is that this is generally displacing to so many things at once. Yeah, I think it's the speed, too, is the mm-hmm. thing on my mind is like, uh you know, with a lot of these other transitions, they felt fast, but they're decades long. And, I, and mm-hmm. the question now is like, how quickly will this be? And also to be clear, I'm a huge believer in what you said too, of this is, can be a force multiplier for us. And like, if we can take parts of our jobs that suck, you know, like notes in a meeting, right? Like mm-hmm. this is an example that's like happening internally with you all the time. We got pretty good about like, you always have an agenda before a meeting. You send a pre-read before a meeting. The meeting is actually to discuss something. Someone is responsible for taking notes and they switch the responsibility and then you have your takeaways and that's how you run a good meeting, right? And like you mm-hmm. do that and meetings are better. Well, now we have these like products like Fathom that some of our team uses. Zoom just announced they're doing this. Microsoft Teams doing it where it's just like, we're going to automatically tell you what this meeting was about and we're going to put the takeaways in there. And if you come late, you can say, be like, give me a synopsis of what's happened. I told you. That's doing something that is an annoying job that's good but important that we were doing before that now software is going to do. That's amazing. And yeah. that's going to save time for everybody and make us more productive. That's fantastic. I think that force multiplier effect is like really exciting and is the near term. And I think the question is like what's happening over the longer term. And like to the point we were getting into a little bit before, like some of these societal things are just kind of crazy to think about. Yeah. I, I mean – I like that we're getting into a, a point where science fiction isn't so much fiction anymore. Like it's like these things are coming, right? And so 
how do we as a society do this in a responsible way? And how do we make sure that we're putting like the right safeguards in place? I think, you know, it's difficult because a lot of this discussion is about morality. And if we're talking about morality, it's like, all right, well, who's morals, right? Like, yeah, what is, there's no universal principles that all people agree to that we would then encode into these systems. And I think that there's some difficulty there because there needs to be, I guess, in order for that to work, uh, which is just like inherently hard. But then there's also a lot of the issues with like biases that are encoded based on who's building such systems or what the training data is and also the implications on, you know, what the distribution of this stuff will do to different populations and so on. So there's a lot of things that need to be solved, but there's just the, the companies that build this stuff don't necessarily have to keep that top of mind. So they're not going to, unless there's some sort of regulation, but we also don't have a government that's equipped to handle this. That, like, yeah, that's what seems scary to me. Cause yeah. I, cause like, as, as you're talking about that, I was thinking about seatbelts. Yeah. Same thing. And I was like, we had cars. Cars are amazing. I mean, honestly, cars are incredible. The fact that you can get in a thing by yourself, travel anywhere, like that doesn't require going on over water is mm-hmm. an unbelievable technology. It's actually pretty new, right? Like it's, but it took, I don't know the exact numbers, but like you could get a car in the 1920s and when did seatbelts become a law? Like the 80s. 50s or 60s or something? It wasn't I even the, the 80s. 80s. I don't know. Yeah. That's a long, we don't have that long. We don't have that long in this case. <laughs> and it, I think it seems like, to your point, like, and we need government that understands this. I can try to put in some of the regulations and safeguards because it's like any technology. Like, if we knew that the printing press was being invented right now, mm-hmm. that would be pretty exciting to think, like, oh, it's not just the monks that can make these books. Like, anyone can do it. Like, that's mm-hmm. a very amazing idea. And at the same time, what should there be? What should there be regulations? I don't know. I just hope that with enough conversation and people like paying attention to these problems, we can actually like dig into them. Yeah. And and that kind of brings me back to the petition that I mentioned. It seems like, you know, the more technology focused people are being like, Hey, let's put a pause on this. Let's figure this out. But at the same time, you know, there was like a a TikTok hearing yesterday and saw excerpts from it. And like, it, it made me fear for our future. Like the questions that our lawmakers ask are so asinine that it's like, they're they're not capable of dealing yeah. with this stuff. And, yeah. you know, like, remember how uh, even like when they were questioning Sundar and, and Zuckerberg and all these people and the questions were just so stupid. It's like these are the people that are making our, our laws. It's really not going to be solved until people our age are the lawmakers that are in power. Yeah. And yeah. we don't have that time. Yeah. OK, let's. So we're talking a lot about the far future, hopefully. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I just want to bring it back to like one other question about marketing and SEO around all this mm-hmm. stuff. So what do you think is going to happen like in the next two years with regards to the importance of optimizing for search versus optimizing for like being in a chat? Like, how do you think about that do you think it's the same thing do you think it's different is there something that marketers should start doing today if they haven't to be ready for that uh i think it's the same thing because you know the the primary chat bots that we're talking about these days are chat gpt uh bing's thing sydney or whatever and then google's thing which is bard 
So two out of three of those are on top of an index. And so ranking well in search is going to inform how you appear in those. And, you know, uh, ChatGPT also has the capability now of crawling the web. So again, it's going to be a function of the visibility yeah. of content. And then the other aspect of it is, um, you know, another thing that's pretty germane to search, which is entities. So like the people, places and things that are represented um from the world, real world in the web, in your content and so on. And so the more that you are optimizing around that, the more opportunities that you will appear in a chat result because it's able to understand that this page or this content is about that thing. So I don't, I don't think that things fundamentally change if you're already doing SEO well. If you're not doing it well, then yeah, of course, a lot changes. Um, but I, I do think that more content in different formats is going to be more searchable. And this is also a function of the technology that's like the base layer for all this large language modeling stuff, uh, which is called embeddings. And embeddings is basically like a um, multidimensional representation of content. So every page that goes into Google is converted into, you know, I think it's like a 512 dimension number. And so um, images are represented this way. Videos are represented this way. And so they're just getting a lot better at relevance for content across, you know, a variety of different formats. And so with the, the rise of like short form video, with the rise of like, you know, just more image driven content, um, it's just going to be a lot more important to have that in your arsenal because Google is going to, or not just Google, all these systems are going to get better at knowing what's in that content. Let me just play this back make sure I got it. You're saying for a no. long time, it was like predominantly what was on the web page is like mm -hmm. what was going to impact search. And then obviously outside of your web page, like the links back to you, the brand that you have across, you know, different social platforms and stuff matters. And that the same tools that we're looking at with, the, with these large language models, within that, it's giving us much better ability to understand what's in images, what's in video. And so that's all going to factor into the algorithms that are actually surfacing authority and valuable, unique content and things. And so therefore, it's like, it's actually kind of an interesting I hadn't really thought about it this way, but for when I first saw ChatGPT, I was like, oh, is this going to be a, the Google threat because of um, people are just going to go to ChatGPT instead of Google? And now what you're saying is like, well, for the marketer, all those things you're doing for SEO before are actually maybe more important, but also mm -hmm. you have to layer on all the other best practices of marketing uh, on the web today and digitally. And if you don't, you're going to be missing out like pretty big. Like You can't be just like one channel only. You have to do all of them. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's a lot here. We just covered a lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> and I honestly don't want to stop talking because I feel like I, I want to go deeper with you on this. Um, but I'm going to ask you one last question. If, if there was a company that you saw that you see, that's like doing all of this really well and like ready for this world that we're going into, who do you think that would be? I don't think anybody's ready for this. Um, I think a lot of companies do content really well. Um, and, you know, I don't think I'd list anyone that other people wouldn't list. Um, but I don't know that anyone is really prepared for this. 
because like we've been discussing, it's been sprung on all of us. Um, but I do think that the companies that have been great at content are going to be the ones that are going to be set up to succeed because for all of this stuff, people are kind of just looking at it like, okay, well, I have this tool and often there's no like centralized strategy around it. And what I mean by that is like, you've got, you know, one random copywriter that's using chat GPT. And then you've got, you know, one random, um, video editor who's using whisper or whatever, like they're all just kind of doing their own thing in their own isolated places. But really this is still a function of content strategy. And I don't feel like anyone has, has like centralized the idea. Like here's how we use generative AI. Here's how we get the right, um, you know, voice and tone out of it. Here's how we get consistent imagery from mid journey and things like that. The person or the group that figures that out first is going to be the real winner that leaves ahead of everybody. And, you know, there's some great tools out there like AI, AI PRM, which is kind of like a library of prompts. It's like a, you know, free tool that a lot of people are using. Um, I definitely encourage people to use that because it helps with, you know, like kind of systematizing a lot of this and that it has a lot of pre-baked prompts that'll help you get you what you want. But ultimately you're gonna wanna like build your own for your own company and then put together like the right workflows, governance models, and the same thing that you typically do for content strategy. But again, it's such a novelty that I don't feel like anyone has really figured that out yet. Yeah, we haven't had time. You know, yeah. every day there's a new thing. <laughs> exactly. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was great. It's so good to catch up. It's been way too yeah. long. Thanks for having me. And uh, I hope you'll come back. Uh, for another episode at some point. We can just do a part um, two of this. There you go. <laughs> uh, and um, where is the best place for people to connect with you to learn more? Yeah, iPoolRank.com. And I'm at iPoolRank on all the things like Instagram, Twitter, etc. Perfect. Thanks, Mike. So good to see you. Are you okay, Sylvie? No. Every time you guys talk about AI on this show, I have a freak out. Yeah. There's so much to take in. And and it has so many implications. Like, it's just, it's... I'm processing. Yeah, I feel like the same. And, you know, Mike started the interview by talking about, you know, this petition for everyone to just, like, stop it. <laughs> for six months. That's what I. And, that's, I like that. Just stop. Yeah. Let us catch our breaths. Yes, and I think it's. Um, I like that too, and I get it. And I think the the weird thing is like, it's also you know one thing I've been thinking about a lot is there's there's going to be AI everywhere, but trust is going to become much more important. And so we know this. Like, can you trust what you're seeing? But also, which brands do you trust? And if you have trust for a brand. You're going to be much more likely to like engage, I think, with their AI tools than if you don't. So an example is like Microsoft adding in a generative AI into all of their office suite. They have a huge user base. Microsoft's been around for a long time. There's been lots of things that they've done that have not been good, but there's been lots of things that done that they have been good, right? You have to, I think you look at that as like, well, should you trust that like their word processing app that has generative AI should you trust Google's or should you trust the thing you've never met before? It's an interesting question because if you assume it's like, is it looking at your data? Is it not? 
privacy implications. I think Apple getting in the game in a way where it could be just like, let's say all this stuff is on your phone and they make a big commitment to it not going to the cloud. That's going to be really compelling and interesting. And I, I think it's like in a world with infinite content and tons of AI stuff, which makes you like almost like uneasy. I think when you you do have trust, it actually is going to become more important and more valuable. Yeah, I think the thing I keep coming back to is like AI literacy. And I feel like a lot of the fear that I know I have and other people have isn't just about like replacement. It's about just like not understanding the fundamentals. So like, yeah. who is the person? Who is the company that's like putting those stakes in the ground and saying like, you know, you you made, you, I think you made a car seatbelt analogy in the interview with yeah. Mike, but like, what's the driver's ed equivalent to AI, you know? Well, I mean, I, as you say that, it makes me think about like my kids and like, they're going to grow up in a world where, you know, Zoe's just learning to write, right? And Olympia knows her letters. Like that's how old my kids are. And by the time that they would need, need to be writing reports, this isn't going to be in its infancy. This this stuff's going to be pretty mature. So what do you do? What how do you educate people? And I'm as at least as I've thought about it, I think you have to educate them in both. You have to say you need to the best writing. You're going to have to be able to do it yourself without this, but also you're going to have to learn how to use this to augment what you're doing. And it's funny, my sister is a is a writer, and she was showing me some like journal or whatever you can submit work to, and they had three options. It was human written human and AI and full AI already. And she was blown away. She's like, can you believe this? This is already in here. And you have to say what your content is because I think the assumption is so many people will use this to augment or help content that if you were to put it into a tool that detects AI, some some high percentage of them will have something in it that was impacted by this. And so this is a way of getting in front of that. But I thought that was kind of mind blowing and also thinking about like just... How do you educate kids in a world with this stuff to like teach them how to use it well and also where you shouldn't use it? Right. Responsibly. Yeah. I mean, I, but they're going to get a long time to learn versus we don't. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of food for thought there. You see what we did is we got heady in the interview. Then you're like, oh man, we got so heady. And then we just went <laughs> right back to the same headspace. You can't escape it. You can't, you can't escape, escape it. it. So if you're still with us here in this headspace, thank you. Also, if you have ideas and things about how this stuff should be handled, we're not the arbiters of deciding it, but like we do want to hear your input. We do want to share it. So please feel free to email us at ttlpod at wissia.com. Uh, I guess you could also put in a review for the show if you want, but you know you don't need to do that. If you love the show, review it. It helps other people discover the show uh, wherever you listen to it. Um, and you can also always connect directly with Sylvia or I on Twitter. Sylvie is Give Me The Loot. I am C. Savage. And you can find us on LinkedIn where these days we spend a lot of time. Could an AI do that? I don't think so. I don't think so. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau. Along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.